0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So I have to admit, I don't really enjoy um, home improvement television shows. I've noticed that when I watch them, if my wife and I are watching them together, then she starts looking around the house, you know. And and that doesn't go well for me. So I don't like home improvement shows very, very much. But I will admit, when you see one that the home before had black mold in the foundation and it was condemned. And then after, when it looks beautiful and inhabitable and wonderful, I admit that is a really wonderful before and after. In today's passage, Paul gives us a before and after. Here's apart from the grace of God what we all are. But by the grace of God, here's what God can make. So it's a wonderful and beautiful passage. It's one of the most well-loved in Scripture, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We know it's about grace. It says grace repeatedly, describes grace maybe better than any other passage. So the title of today's sermon is God's Saving Grace, and we will be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And if you're using a pew Bible, uh, page 1159, and then we'll flip the page about halfway through the passage I want today to be as simple as it can be so that we can really get a lot out of God's Word. So here are the three big movements of the text in my understanding of them. Verses 1 through 3, I'll call without God's grace. Verses 4 through 7, I'll call only by God's grace. And then verses 8 through 10, I'll call never the same because of God's grace. So the first movement, without God's grace. Ephesians 2, look in verse 1. Without God's grace, this is who we all are. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. As humans, of course, we need analogies to understand an infinite and incomprehensible God. And God is so gracious that He uses analogies in the Bible. And we have to rely to a degree on analogical reasoning. But we want to be careful that when we do use illustrations or analogies, we try to represent truth as well as we can. Perhaps you've heard the illustration before, that we are like people, apart from the grace of God, who are swimming in the ocean. And we're doing our best to keep our head above water, and then maybe someone will send us a lifeline. But doesn't this verse let us know that's a poor illustration? In reality, we're drowned on the bottom of the ocean floor. This text says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people have zero receptivity, zero sensitivity, zero responsiveness to any external stimulus. They remain dead, immovable. And it's so vital that we clarify this, that at least in this passage, he's not talking about us being sick on a continuum of sickness, but being dead. You know why that's so important? Because if we're truly dead, then what we need is indispensable and impossible in our own doing. So the Bible presents us as dead. Now, to be clear, just so that we don't get confused, I can imagine how someone would say, well, Josh, are you saying that because we're spiritually dead— Everyone is as bad as they always could be? No, no. To be spiritually dead, to have depravity in our heart, does not mean that each person is equally doing all the same bad things all the time. It just means at the level of our heart is a rot. So that even the socially good things we do have a rot of selfishness in them. Have a rot of a motivation that isn't for the love of God or the glory of God, but is for the love of self. So we are dead. Then Now verses 2 and 3 are going to show us that we may not even perceive that we are dead. Look in verse 2. In which you, this is all of us before the grace of God. And all of us apart from the grace of God. In which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now in the sons of disobedience. So here are two descriptions of how dead people are dead but don't know they are dead. The first one is the world. So as dead people, we live like the rest of the world, following the course of the world, following the charted path the world has for us. But also of dead people, we follow the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. So let's take those one at a time. So the first reason dead people don't know they're dead is because they live like the majority. And they assume because they're following the path of the majority, they're safe. But that would be a little bit like buying a ticket to get on the ship, the Titanic. And thinking, well, everybody else is getting on. They all paid a lot of money for it. So surely if they're all getting on, then we all must be safe. But friend, let me remind you this morning that being in a crowd does not mean you have security. Wide is the path that leads to destruction everybody else is doing it should not normally bring you encouragement but concern the course of this world is the very course that leads us to destruction but then the last phrase according to the prince of the power of the air the Bible there is describing Satan Satan is described with multiple descriptions in scripture in John 12:31 he's called the ruler of this world in second Corinthians 4 verse 4 he is lowercase g the god of this age he's allowed an incredible amount of influence this is so helpful because it lets us know yes it might be an overstatement and it would be wrong to say the devil made me do it but it's also wrong to say the devil had nothing to do with it the devil is engaged and involved in what keeps us away from god so dead people don't realize they're dead They don't know they're dead because they're following the course of this world. Everybody else is living like this. And they don't know they're dead because they have an enemy, a predator in Satan, who is like a predator leaving small breadcrumbs to keep you off the path of life and to bind you in the path of death. You know what this means in Raleigh today? It means the most irreligious and unspiritual secular person is actually unknowingly enslaved to his sin nature, falsely assured by standing with the majority and unwittingly following the devil whose existence he denies while he glibly lives without life having God at the center. The illustration of what makes dead people dead is that they live as if life without God is normal or life without God at the center is good. But now notice verse 3, the dead do not realize that they are dead men walking, among whom we all once lived. This is all of us apart from the grace of God, but we live according, apart from God's grace, to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So notice dead people are living their best life. I'm living how I want to live. I'm following the desires I have. I do what I feel like doing. But notice the end of the verse. And yet by our nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Dead people don't know they are dead men walking. They're living according to their desires. But their desires are sinful, selfish, and self-serving. And hence, apart from the grace of God, we are all by nature children of wrath Children of wrath means a description of what is your description of character, but also your destiny. Think of James and John, who are called sons of thunder. This doesn't mean their dad's name is Thunder. It means a description of their character and their destiny. And here is a description of our character and destiny. Apart from the grace of God, we are children of wrath. Wrath is a hard word to hear. Sometimes people struggle with God exerting wrath. Maybe a couple reminders are, are helpful. God's divine wrath is nothing like human anger. Human anger is vengeful, it is vindictive, and human anger at its best only knows a small percentage of factors. God's righteous justice is not vengeful, it is not personally vindictive, and unlike us, God actually knows the motive of the person that he is judging, and he knows all the infinite relevant factors that played into account. So without God's grace, we are dead. We are unaware that we are dead. And further, we are unable to solve the death that we occasionally experience the pain of. Did you notice the three factors that are compoundly true Of those who are dead. I don't think these three factors are taken into account by our culture. I think if you went to see someone in culture and you went to see them for counsel or for advice or perhaps for therapy, I don't think they would bring grace because I don't think they know the seriousness of the problem. Here are the three factors that we just saw. First, we saw that we're dead in our transgressions. And our sin nature. That means we have a problem at the level of our nature. Let me put it this way. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are already sinners. Our very essence and ontology is broken. We are sinners because we already have a sin nature. This text is telling us we are broken at the level of our nature. All right, secondly, so the first factor is our nature. The second factor is our environment. We follow the course of this world. We are relational and social creatures that are drawn to the wrong direction. And third, there's a supernatural factor. Satan, the prince of the power of this air. How many counselors in Raleigh do you know that would consider all three factors? I have a broken nature. My environment is a piece, but not the total of my brokenness. And there's a supernatural force working against me If we can't properly identify the problem Surely we will not properly point to the solution And friend, just to give away the solution The only solution is Jesus Christ And if we don't know the problem We will not be compelled to go to Jesus We'll think, well just one of these is out of whack But no, we have a broken nature We have a broken environment And we have an enemy who is supernatural In his spiritual force So Proverbs 4, verse 12 warns us, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. Friend, perhaps we don't understand grace because we don't understand its indispensable and infinite cost. See, grace is easily misunderstood. Many people talk about grace without understanding how costly and indispensable it is. This passage will tell us that grace is a gift. A gift is something that is given to you that has no cost to the receiver. But if you don't understand the difference of how indispensable and necessary that cost is, it won't transform your life. Let me explain. Over the last year or so, my children have been invited to birthday parties, which are always a lot of fun. And at some of these birthday parties, when we leave, we are given a gift bag. And when you leave with a gift bag, technically speaking... I did not pay for the gift bag. The gift bag is a gift. But does that gift bag radically transform my life? Well, no. Ten minutes later, as we're driving home, in the back seat, I have a broken kazoo and a yo-yo that won't come back up. (laughs) It's not that the gift bag wasn't free. It was free. But was it indispensable? Was it so costly that it transformed my life? No. Now, I know this is just an analogy, but let me change the variable a little bit. Let's now picture it this way. Imagine you're someone who grew up in true poverty in the other side of the world, and you have a disease that cannot be fixed by anyone in your country, and you don't have the expenses materially to pay for it anyway. So you're condemned to death, and you have no resources to change your outcome. But then somebody else pays for you to be flown out of the country and to have this medical procedure performed which will ensure and spare your life. And you learn that for them to pay for you to get that meant that they liquidated all of their assets. Wouldn't that change your response to that family who at indispensable cost provided for your life? I want you to understand something this morning. The grace that God is talking about is indispensable and infinitely costly. And no one else has it. So look at verse 4. But God. So verses 1 through 3 were without the grace of God. But now number 2, verses 4 through 7, only by the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, I hope that two of your favorite words put together in the Bible are but God. Apart from God's grace, we have no real reason for hope or encouragement. But because of God's grace, there is always reason for hope and encouragement. This week, I was convicted about this greatly. There's someone who I care about who is far from God. And I've reached out to their family and tried to connect with them. And to make a long story short, it just didn't work And then this week I received an email from someone in our church who asked a number of us if we would please pray that God would get a hold of this person. And it was so convicting and encouraging to me because it reminded me, yeah, that's how I should have kept thinking. But God, because of God, any sinner can be saved because of God, any failure can be overcome Because of who God is. Look at how the verse continues. Here's the kind of God we have. A God who is rich in mercy. A God who has great love with which He loved us. Continue to verse 5 so you see when He loved us. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. God has not loved us at our best. He has loved us at our worst. When we were dead in stunning grace, God loved us then. And then he did three things for us when we were dead. In Greek, there's a word. It's a prefix. In Greek, it's pronounced sin, but it's not the same as our English word. In English, we translate it with. And the next three words all have with, and they're all in the past tense. Here's what God did when we were dead. See, let's keep reading. Number one, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Second, he raised us up with Christ. And third, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God in Christ with Christ has made us alive when we were dead, raised us up when we were dead, and seated us when we were dead in the heavenly places. Places. You might be thinking, I don't understand. I'm not in the heavenly places yet. But this text is reminding us that you, in Christ, are just as honored and accepted and secured as he is. To be united to Christ means that everything that is true of him will certainly be true of me. God has done this because God is good. And God has done this for his own glory. So look in verse 7, so that in the coming ages, that's eternity future, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has acted to save those who were dead so that he could display the surpassing wealth of his grace to all eternity for all eternity. But think about the flip. If you get everything that Jesus deserves, that can only be because He bore everything our sins deserve. See, if the text can say about you and I that we were made alive and raised and seated with Christ, then that's only because Jesus bore our death and died it in our place. Have you ever thought about on the cross today we'll have communion and we'll... Remember the cross in particular Think about what Jesus said While he was dying He was experiencing extreme physical pain And yet he did not yell out My hands, my feet, my head No, he yelled out My God, my God Why have you forsaken me? Why that phrase? Because friend, that's what death is To be eternally alienated from God Jesus bore our death So that we could be made alive. Praise God. What our sin deserves, He took. And yet what His life deserves, He gives. And He gives entirely by grace. But now I want to stress the third point. The first section was without God's grace, verses one through three. The middle was only by God's grace, verses four through seven. But now finally, never the same because of God's grace, verses eight through ten. If we don't understand how indispensable God's grace is, how impossible this is apart from God's grace, then we'll talk about grace and we'll think we understand it and we'll leave exactly as we came in here, which means we don't grasp grace at all. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Isn't verse 8 humbling? Do you know how humbling it is? Um, one nerdy Greek thing at this point. Uh, the word grace and the word faith are in the feminine gender in Greek. And the word this is in the neuter gender, which means it's referring to them both. The grace is a gift that was not our own doing. And the faith is a gift that is not our own doing. The whole thing is God's grace. Faith accesses grace as a response and an instrument. Faith does not initiate grace, nor is it an achievement. Have you seen the end of the 1930s cartoon Snow White? Snow White is laying in the casket, and she is dead. And when she is kissed by Prince Charming, her response is to embrace him. And that's what faith does. It responds to prior grace. It is because of the gift of God that we believe. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. If you will have Jesus, he has you already. It's a good quote. Faith receives rest and rejoices in Jesus and his righteousness. Verse nine makes this inarguably clear. Continue with me in verse nine. It is not a result of works. So that no one may boast. How could we boast? Our works are always mingled with our sinful desires. And yet this is grace and grace alone. If salvation is not because of human initiative, then it is not a reward for good deeds. And since there's no room for human merit, there can be no grounds for human boasting. Verse 10. This grace work, this entire work of salvation includes permanent transformation. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. It's the Greek word poema from which we get poem. We are the written poetry of God created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you notice then Since these good works flow out of being created in Christ Jesus These good works are not the root or cause of our salvation They are the fruit and effect of our salvation The good works are born because of relationship to Jesus Now I said earlier If you have a free gift bag And you have someone who paid To spare your life from a medical condition You respond differently even though they're both technically free You respond differently if you understand the cost and the indispensable nature of them. Here's what this passage is showing us. The cost was so high, God alone could pay it. The need was so great, we could not contribute to it. And even the good works that flow are because of the union we have with Christ, which is why they're truly good in their nature. Do you know what that means, friend? Human boasting is destroyed by grace. As humans, boasting is our default setting. We tend to construct our sense of self based on why we're better than other people. They made wrong choices, or they didn't work as hard as we did, or they have the wrong associations, or they're not as smart as we are. And so we construct our sense of self by looking down. Jeremiah 9 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast in this, that he knows the Lord who is full of steadfast love. After three chapters of Romans talking about how desperate our sin is, in 327 he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. See, here's what grace does if you really grasp it. It so traumatically destroys your sense of self-achievement that you can no longer look down on anyone. You can only look up to the scarred hands that have reached down to you. Grace destroys competition. Grace eliminates comparison. Grace ends insecurity. Grace removes accusation. And grace causes the end Of opposition Grace causes you to truly say In the depth of your soul I am what I am Only by the grace of God See grasping grace Changes you forever The fruit Of the spirit Is rooted in the work of Christ But its soil Is the grace of God See if you actually Understand grace Then it changes everything Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, self-control, patience, kindness come from the soil of grace. I'll give you one example of how this changes everything. Think of the realm of forgiveness. Lewis Meads has a book called Forgive and Forget, and he wrote with a little time and a little more insight. We begin to see both ourselves and the person who offended us in more humbler profiles. We are not as innocent as we thought we were. And we have not really a monster to forgive, but a weak, needy human being. And when you see both yourself and your enemy in the weakness and silliness of humanity, it is easier to forgive. Grace changes everything. Forgiveness, relationships, how I view myself. If I really realize that I had nothing but Jesus paid it all. So let me give three confusions that I want to hopefully alladicate here one confusion people say yeah but but i'm a good person and i mean to say this as politely and lovingly as i can but i don't know how to say it other than to be this direct if you think you're a good person you are still dead in your sin you don't know who god is you don't know who you are you've been blinded by the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air None are good but God That's why we need grace But second You could say well I'm saved Because of my faith But friend no we're saved Through faith Because of God's grace You see faith is like a straw And Jesus Christ Is like the water If you're dying of thirst You can't drink the straw It won't give you any nourishment The straw is only useful to get to the water. And this passage tells us God even gave us the straw. See, grace alone is the reason we're saved. We are not saved because of the quality or quantity of our faith. If you're thinking, well, I'll be saved because I believe enough, because I've done enough, then you are looking at the wrong object. You're holding the straw. No, we're saved because the object is Jesus Christ. And our faith is in him and his accomplishments. But a third confusion Some will argue But well, God kind of gets me started But then I really am the one Who finishes the race But didn't you see what the text actually says In Ephesians 2 It says for by grace are you saved Not converted Not justified Not initiated Not begun But saved The whole thing Is all of grace, It is right to speak of the entirety as grace. All of it is what God has done and not us. So do you see the before and after? Before we're dead, but by God's grace now, we're alive. Before we're enslaved... In Christ, we're enthroned. Before we're objects of wrath, now objects of grace. Before, sons of disobedience, now sons of God with Christ. Before, under Satan's dominion, now united with Christ. If you had a friend who was over your house, house house-sitting for you, and he went through your mail, and said, I feel a little bad about it, but I went through your mail, but don't get too mad. I saw you had a bill, and I paid it for you. Well, you'd be happy. But your happiness might be a little bit dependent on how big the bill was. Have you run a red light in Raleigh? I just paid my $50. (laughs) But what if they were going through your mail, and they saw that letter from the IRS? You know that one where in government language they write something like this? I'm going to get you. (laughs) And at the end, you realize that if they paid that bill, they may have saved you incarceration. You understand something significant has happened. So, friend, do you have a grasp of the Son of God giving his life for you? What's more beautiful? What's more costly? What's more transforming? Friend, do you have a grasp that that salvation is, did not in any way depend on your contribution. What's more transformative than knowing I am what I am only by grace? How could I be impatient with others? How could I be angry at others when I only am what I am positively by the grace of God? But finally this morning, have you had the water? God offers you the straw. Believe. Come to Christ, drink of him, and know what it is to be satisfied. Let's turn to him this morning in prayer. God, do the things that your word intends to do. Humble us by your grace. Remind us, Lord, that we do not have within ourselves the works of righteousness to satisfy your perfect character. Lord, I pray also that someone this morning might respond in faith. Perhaps up until today, they have put at least part of their trust in their own decency and their own performance. But Lord, we just drink the work of Jesus Christ. Help them today to say something like this in their own words. Dear God, today I put my faith in Jesus alone. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection... I am saved by grace. Save them as they simply call out to you in that prayer. But then finally, Lord, especially as we take communion, I pray that the attention would be on God. What a great God who sent his Son who loved us when we were dead. What a great Son who died and suffered in our place. What a great Spirit who has opened our eyes. Thank you that it is all of grace. Because it is all of you. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scalley, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcrolley.com. That's e b c r a l e i g h.com.